Who are you? My name is Blair. This is the last week of a series that we're doing called The Stories We Tell Ourselves. And I want you to wrestle with that question today. Who are you? I don't think it's an important question. I think it's critical because I'm convinced that all of us live our lives based on the way we've answered that question. And very few of us answer that question by sitting down and thinking seriously about it. Most of the times we answer that question in the quiet of our minds based on the way that we've gone about living. It's why when Paul said, I don't want you to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that one of the things that he's going to mess with, that God's going to mess with if we, if we start transforming our minds, is going to be how you answer the question, who am I? I think God deeply cares about this. Now, if I were to sit down with you today, I were to look across the table and say, tell me, who are you? I think I would get some standard answers. I've done this before. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult question. It's somewhat uncomfortable. That's why I enjoy it. It's an uncomfortable question. It makes people squirm. It's fun, right? And, but there's some standard answers that you'll hear. So one of those is people will start naming off the roles that they have in their lives pretty quickly. I'm an accountant. I'm a salesperson. I'm a student. I'm a parent. They'll, they'll start naming off roles because that's how they, I mean, they spend so much time doing that. That must be who I am. The problem is your roles change, sometimes not by your choice. Sometimes somebody lets you go and you have to find a different role or you change jobs completely or you get to the end of your like occupation and you retire. If you're your your role, what are you now? And there's like issues with trying to figure out what do I do with my life? How do I see who I am if this is all changing? But commonly, people will tell me this, who I am is how I spend my time. And so the roles come up quite a bit. Some people have figured out it can't be that, and so they give me a different list. They'll give me character traits, and they'll start listing all kinds of stuff, um, I'm a self-starter, I'm determined, I'm, you name it, it's going to come out of their mouth. It's not, it sounds like an interview thing where you list a line where you give me your attributes and I'm telling you what my skills are. And the pursuit of those things, they're not, that's not a bad thing. These, it's good to have good character. It's good to build those qualities into your life. The, the problem is that what happens with some of this is that we... We are paid a compliment because of some good character that we have, so then we prioritize that in our lives to do that over and over because we'd like to hear more compliments about how well we've done at this thing. And then it becomes a badge of pride. This is who I am. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get all kinds of compliments. The problem with character being the definition of who you are is that you can't be those things all the time. You can't be kind all the time. So what do you do when you've set out to be kind and you fail at that? Maybe it's only every now and then that you fail at that, but you still fail at that. For some people, it turns them into 
perfectionistic freaks. Like, they will do anything and everything to do something perfectly because their identity, who they are, is wound up in that thing. For other people, their answer to the question of who am I gets answered by the circumstances that they're currently living in right now. It's really risky. Because for some of us, the circumstances, the outcomes of our lives, they're really good at the moment. And so you look at yourself as a winner and things are great and this is how I see myself because of all of these good things in my life. I'm obviously doing the right things to achieve such greatness. And you see yourself as that, but even that can be fleeting and fail. And for others, the circumstances, they, they, they flip the opposite way. Something negative is going on in your life. The outcomes, are you've gained a little bit of weight. And now you walk around talking about how you look and how you feel and how, how unattractive you are. And so it, it, it's all this stuff that's circumstantial. Like it happens in this moment. And whatever's flying in your life at that time kind of sets the course for who you are and how you think about yourself. And it becomes very risky because it's so, like, shifting on you. I've heard other people look at me and say, I'm pretty sure this thing that I'm passionate about is who I am. And some people would even identify that as a God-given gift. God gave me this passion. I think he's put some purpose and meaning in my life because of this. And this passion, it, it consumes me. It takes my energy. It takes my time. My thoughts are on it all the time. The problem is that describes things other than just things that you might do. That could also describe a relationship. And for some people... Relationships have become their passion. They're driven by I, my sense of who I am is me being connected in this relationship. And if that relationship ends, I put myself in another one. I put myself in another one. I put myself in another one because who I am is tied up with who I'm with. And for some people, this, ap- this even happens with your family, like the, the value of family gets put ahead of God, even. And so your sense of self and who you are is wrapped up in all of that. And if that ever gets shaken, if that ever gets messed with, you're not sure what to do because it has defined who you are. It's because we have so many different things that we look at that influence how we answer this question, who we are, that the stories we tell ourselves are so dangerous. Just think about this for a second. Think about the kind of story where your personal critic shows up and your personal critic starts picking on a role that you have and points out an inadequacy that you have in that role. You're not a good fill in your occupation. You're, you're terrible at being a mom in this way. You got a C on that test Are you kidding me? You're not trying hard enough. And your personal critic goes after, you've gained some weight. And it picks and picks and picks. And you know what? 
It's bad enough that it's already messing with you, but because it's defined who you are, now it's starting to redefine who you are. And now your personal critic isn't just doing a number on your life, it's doing a number on how you live your life because how you see yourself is being redefined. You're in a relationship or you have a passion for something and some conflicts enters that. And the story you tell yourself about that conflict sets a path that you follow naturally and it doesn't take it to a good place. And that story that you told yourself starts to rewrite the way you feel about that relationship, the way you feel about that passion that you have in your life. And it's not just messing up your relationship. It's starting to change who you think you are. You see life, man, it, it changes constantly. You can't see around the bend. You don't know what's going to happen next. Things come in waves. They go in waves. All kinds of circumstances come in and out of your life. And if you're walking around with a set of blinders on that tell you this is how I view life. We talked about these big defining stories. If you have this big defining stories that tells you what reality is and it's wrong, all of these circumstances that flow into your life that you misinterpret can reshape how you think about who you are. This stuff, this stuff is risky because who we are can change in a moment. It just shifts with the sand. And many times it doesn't do so in a positive way. So what if... What if this morning we could answer a question about who you are that would be fixed? It would be firm. It would stand on a foundation that it didn't matter what was going on in your world. It didn't matter what kind of stories you might start telling yourself. If you knew something was true and you could count on it, it could be a stabilizing factor in your life. See, I think that's possible. That's what I want to try to do today. But it's going to require that we listen to the one person in your life who tells you the truth all the time. That's Jesus. He has your best interest at heart. And the way he thinks and the way he talks about you, the way he has acted, reveals a whole lot about who you are. And if you could find a way to embrace what he says about you instead of the stories that you write instead, then you could have a foundation that it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter when your roles changed or when things happened. There would be a firmness to what you knew to be true. So that's what I want to try to do today. I, I want to do a quick list. There's more. But this is what we have time for. We have time for four things that I want you to understand. This is who you are. In Jesus, this is who you are. And knowing who you are allows you to live in a way that nobody else does. So that's where we're going. And I want to start um, by answering the question, who are you, this way. You are are loved. You're loved. These are not just some words that get thrown out to make you feel good. 
um, I want you to see what the scriptures say about this love that God has for you. Listen, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates, this is something he shows you, acts on. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is action-based love. And it's not based on something that you did to earn or deserve it. In fact, if you pay close attention, it says here in the scriptures, God demonstrated this while you were still a sinner, while you were still rebelling, while you still thought your desires made more sense than God, when you wanted to do it your way and you brought harm into the world and to the people around you. While you were doing that, God said, I love you. I don't care about the situation that you're in. It's not the circumstances. It's not your role. It's not some level of perfection that you have found a way to manufacture in your life. None of that is the reason. I love you because I've chosen to love you. And I acted on it by sending my son who would die for you. This is the level of Like the depth of love that God has for you is unimaginable because of the price that he pays. Now, for some people, I I hear them say, listen, I'm lonely. And if if you're somebody here who's checking out Christianity and you feel like you're alone, that you don't feel loved by God, that's gonna be true about you if you haven't accepted what he's done on your behalf yet. You're apart from God. All you have is yourself and your stories. And until you accept that sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf, you're outside of that love. It's like it's there, it's offered for you, but we all have a chance to either accept it and embrace it or reject it. But it's sitting right there. Now what's weird is there are followers of Jesus who have accepted that love who still tell me they feel alone. They feel like in their world, God does not show up in a real way for them. That they feel disconnected or on the outs. And I want to suggest to you there are two things that are probably going on that are causing that to happen because the truth about you is you're loved and it's there and it's available for you. So what could be happening? One, I'm convinced that the stories we tell ourselves often put us at the center of the story. And so when we tell ourselves about what's going on in life or how it's all developing or the conflict that we're having, we never stop and invite God into the middle of that to ask, what's your perspective? Do I have this right? What are you thinking about this? What's your understanding of me? We never have a conversation with the Holy Spirit about any of this stuff. And so God's perspective sits on the outside and the love that you could experience The love that could be there for you gets set aside because your story is more important than anything else. I think it's damaging. But I think there's a second reason too. Jesus is talking to his followers in John chapter 15. And he says this to them. This is verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Now, if you've 
If you listen to anybody in our culture tell you what God really thinks about mankind, you would conclude that if you don't obey and listen, that God's out to harm you. He will punish you, he's going to come for you, and you're in trouble, and you should be afraid. Jesus just offers an alternative reason. He says, listen, the reason I'm instructing you, the reason I've given you commands, the reason I've given you all of this information is that so when you listen, you actually remain in a place where my love can do its job in your heart. So when you choose to do it my way, when you choose my values, when you choose to go about it the way I want you to live, you, you keep yourself in a place where my love keeps flowing over you. And what happens sometimes is when we feel alone, we've stepped out of that and we kind of blame God. God, where'd you go? No, where'd you go? Because it's there for you to experience on a continual basis if you'll just remain in it. But sometimes... Because we want our way, we want our desires, we want to handle it on our own, we want to get that level of perfection without involving God in our lives, we're left feeling alone. Listen, my friends, you are a person who is loved by Almighty God. And if you will listen to His voice and put yourself in a place where you will value what He values, your heart will feel an overwhelming sense of love. Cares for you. It's part of who you are. And if you're not experiencing that, you ought to ask yourself, what can I do to find a way to remain in this love that he's given? If, if one of the things that you are is loved, then it quickly flows to the second that this will be true too. You're also forgiven. You're loved and you're forgiven. And here's the weird thing about the forgiveness too. That is something that you can refuse to accept as well. It's a gift. I'm going to forgive you, but if you don't want that, you can walk away from that. You can say, no, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need your forgiveness. I like my life the way it is. And God will give you that opportunity to do that. But if you want it, Listen to what this says here, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, if you're willing to confess, if you're willing to say, my bad, I did that wrong, I shouldn't have said that, I overstepped, I carried this bitterness, if you're willing to say that kind of stuff, this is what he says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want you to catch the goal of here. The goal was if you're willing to confess, you can have a level of forgiveness that's a, like I'm purifying you. It's in a process. Now, I, I don't know why this is, but I talk to a lot of people who seem to live in the shadow of some of the biggest failures of their lives. Like it's haunting for them. And, and they don't know how to unpack that. So, and it could be something that somebody said 10 years ago, still ringing in your brain so that you can truly live 
And all that's required is for you to just confess this. Hey, this is, this is my burden, God. I've been carrying it for a long time. I can't do it anymore. Will you take this? Yes, I'd love to take this. I'd love to do that. Let's start this process where I'm going to work in your heart and your life. Because what you're going to find is when, if, it, if it's bitterness, if it's this story that you've been telling yourself for 10 years, you are going to take that out little by little. It's going to have long roots. And there's going to need to be a process that God goes through that purifies your heart. But why not? You're forgiven. You already have an opportunity to live in freedom. But you have to choose. Do you want to be that kind of person? Or do you want to go it on your own? God says who you are is forgiven. If you're willing to step up and confess, he's faithful to forgive. That's who you are. Now, if you're loved, if you're forgiven, then it leads to another thing that's pretty amazing, um, really, when you think about it. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, again, they're talking about Jesus, I, I received this gift that he offered. He died for me. I'm going to receive it. I'm going to believe that that was given to me on my behalf. What happens? To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who are you? You're a son. You're a daughter of God. Can you believe that? You're part of his family. Listen, this is what gets said in verse 13. It's kind of cool. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. He just listed the three power structures in the Roman world right there. If you were born into a natural um, family, you had tons of rights that came with that. And, uh, and people counted on it. You, you had inheritance rights. You had all kinds of things that were due you because you were born into that family. The second one, he says, was not a human decision. You could actually sign a contract with another person and adopt them. And what was odd about that is this adoption would have actually given you more rights in the Roman world than a natural-born son. So you would sign this agreement between two people, and you could become part of somebody's family through legal means that would give you all kinds of rights. Some, somebody would make the decision to do that. I'm going to, a human decision, you're going to be in my family. You would contractually do that with each other. The last one was a husband's will. Look, in, in their world, he reigned. It was so bad that if he decided to label one of his kids rebellious, he was allowed to kill that kid and nobody would question it. There's just a lot of freedom for the husband in these, in these environments. So he's talking, he's saying, none of this is how you got your citizenship. None of this is how you became my son or daughter. You want to know how that happened for you? I chose you. I chose you. I gave this to you. There's no, you're not signing some weird contract. It's, it's, it's me 
coming and saying, I love you so much, you're part of the family. Did you guys know your royalty? You're, you're in the most extravagant family in the universe. Riches, power, you name it. You're an heir. The scriptures refer to you as an heir. They talk about you being adopted. That's who you are. You're a son and daughter of God. And yet, so many times, we see ourselves on the outs with God, and I really believe it's the story that we tell ourselves that's just not true. You're loved. You're forgiven, and because of that, you are part of God's family. This is who you are. Now, what's great about this is that if you're part of God's family, there's some privileges that come with that. You're an heir. This is really good stuff. But there's also something else. With every family, there's privileges, but there's also responsibilities. And it just so happens that the responsibilities that we have could actually provide us with purpose and meaning in life. Jesus is sitting on a hillside in the Galilees. He's talking to his disciples. He looks at them and he says this, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. This is what I'm doing in your life. You're part of my family. That means you get to represent me to the world. This is, this is incredible. Do you understand that this is bigger than your role? Whatever role you have right now, and however it may change, what stays the same is that you get to represent God in the world. doesn't matter what role you have. That's an opportunity. When your circumstances change and you're having success, you represent God in the world. And when you're having like the most horrible day of your life, it may be just as important, maybe more important, because in that moment, you still have a mission. You are the light of the world. And, and for people to see you respond and to act the way that you do in the worst possible moment speaks. And why do you do that? Because you're in God's family. And because you're the light of the world. Doesn't matter if your passions shift doesn't matter if you have a failure in character. You realize, my failure in character, this thing that I really cared about, I can seek forgiveness on that and I can go back at it because I'm the light of the world. I can do this. I can be honest about my failures before God. And I can shine. Did you know that's who you are? Every opportunity that you have to live is an opportunity for you to be the light that God intended for you to be. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're in God's family. And because of that, you carry the light of the world. You represent him. The, the problem is so many of the stories we tell ourselves have put ourselves at the center. And so these truths about how Jesus sees you never enter into the picture. We don't hear them. We don't think about them. And it causes our lives to lose peace. 
uh, band, if you would come on up here. I, I, I told you all in the middle of this series that I was preparing to have these conversations with you, and God revealed to me that I had cracks all over my life that, where I wasn't feeling a sense of peace. And I told you I was going to have to do something about that, and I knew that. I want to tell you one of the things that I chose to do. I'm not saying that you should. I'm just offering this up as an example of something that I found that started to help me. Um, What I realized was as I laid my head down at night that all the things that I had piled up in my life that were creating stress, I started to think about those then. Which is odd for me. I usually go to sleep. I'm done. It's over with. I wake up in the morning. I remember nothing. That's, that's, That's a good day. I was not having months of a good day. I would wake up, and it was because of the story I'd been telling myself that I could handle more. Just put more stress on. I was made for stress. Stress doesn't affect me. I know my life better than you, God, and so I was piling it on. And so I was um, dealing with sleepless nights, and I was seeing a lack of peace in a lot of areas of my life. And I knew um, God had kind of exposed this, and I had to do something about it. And I understood that one of the things that I needed was to start refocusing on Jesus. Because it's the source of my strength. And I know that, but I wasn't doing it. So I found, um, I found a song, uh, Lauren Daigle uh, kind of remixed an old hymn that I grew up singing. Uh, she called it Turn Your Eyes. The hymn is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And uh, it's, a really, it's a really beautiful hymn. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I heard that song, and I knew that was the problem. Because the things of this world were vivid for me. They were keeping me up at night. They had had chalked up my heart. And he said um, in that song, that his glory and grace, in light of those these things that I deeply cared about and was so upset about and was losing peace over, they would fade and they would go away. And I wanted that, but I just, I knew it would be a process. But here's what I decided to do. I started getting in bed every night. I'm tired. It's dark. The last thing I did, I pull up this song And I just played it, and I would sing along with it. Sometimes I would listen, sometimes I would sing. But I let that idea, the things of this earth, would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, and I would just focus on that. And I'd turn that off when the song ended, and I'd go to sleep. And I found that I was waking up still in the middle of the night, with some of these things that were still on my mind, but now there was a song competing for my attention. There was a song ringing in my head, and there was these stressors that were waking me up, and I decided I would choose to sing that song. And I went back to sleep a lot. Some of the best sleep I've had. Why? 
Because I know my source of strength is Jesus. See, my life in Jesus is different than the one that I want to live. My life in Jesus is a person who's loved, I'm forgiven, I'm part of God's family, and I'm given an opportunity to be the light. And if I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to see it through his eyes, my life has deep meaning and purpose all the time with everything that I touch. And I finally found a way to start refocusing that. And I know I still have work to do. I know that because there are nights when I remember to play the song, but I'm so ticked off about something that happened that day that I don't want to stop thinking about that, so I'm not going to play this peaceful song. Like, that's messed up. But I did it. So I I know I've got work to do, but my friends... What do you need to do to just adjust your course a little so that you could start experiencing the peace that God wants to give you? If you would just see your life the way he sees you, what do you need to do? I I doubt it's listening to a song at night, but there might need to be something that you can do to start Tying into this peace that he offers on a regular basis. I want to give you a chance to just process and think about what adjustment you might need to make. I want you to listen to this song. I hope it will help you as well.